Welcome to the Insights at ULAR 2020 series, brought to you by the Cytokine Signaling Forum, where authors review their Congress posters and presentations on cytokine signaling and JAK inhibitors. My name is Professor Leonard Calabrese from the Cleveland Clinic. This edition focuses on patient-reported outcomes and real-world data featuring presentations from Professor Rike Alton, Professor Vibika Strand, Professor Axel Fink, and Dr. Kelly Gavigan. In the first presentation, Professor Fink looks at real-world effectiveness of baricitinib in the Swiss Rheumatoid Arthritis Registry. Hello, my name is Axel Fink. I am a rheumatologist and an epidemiologist um, working at the Geneva University. And this is uh, 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 the MDPhD student uh, who works uh, abstract and did the poster uh, for this analysis. So the, the aim of this work was to analyze as a first outcome drug, overall drug retention uh, as, a, as a mixed outcome, uh, balancing effectiveness of a treatment and its safety meaning that a patient who is happy with this treatment because it works well and he doesn't have any major side effects is going to keep it, whereas if it either doesn't work well or it has unacceptable side effects, they tend to stop. And so it's, it's a nice outcome that balances both these outcomes. Um, and what we did, we looked at all patients receiving uh, three alternative drugs uh, in the Swiss registry, um, and compared uh, baricitinib, uh, the JAK inhibitor, to uh, various other alternative drugs. And I probably give the word to Benoit to explain what we did. So the overall idea is to design this analysis as a survival analysis, but survival analysis of the drug, which means that the event we are looking at is the stop of the treatment, and we are trying to compare between different groups, uh, how long is the treatment maintained, uh, which we believe is a reflector of how good or efficient it could be because they keep it longer. Uh, so we used a database in Switzerland where all rheumatologists, they upload data on when the treatment was started and when it is stopped. And then we use that for the survival analysis, which uh, resulted in the tables and graphics that you can see on the poster. Um, what resulted from that is that the treatment course duration is an average longer in the diacetinib compared to the, all, all the drugs taken together for rheumatoid diabetes patients. And we tried then to subdivide the analysis to compare the diacetinib group with anti-TNF treatments and with other mode of action biological demons. Uh, although we excluded rituximab because it is not possible to do such analysis with rituximab, which is injected once every six months, but other drugs were all included, uh, except tofacitinib, which we also excluded from the subgroup analysis to avoid comparison between the two injections. Which means that overall we had one 1,135 treatment courses initiated. So those are the events we are looking at. And some patients are in different group because they tried several drugs 
successively. Like the main result is that there is a significant difference in between the biocytin input and the non-biocytin input. So the survival of the biocytin treatment process is better. And this difference is still significant after we adjusted for um, a lot of factors, uh, including age, gender, BMI, and also line of therapy, because sometimes the, these are chronic patients, and when they try several drugs, they tend to change quite often, and, and they would stay on the latest drug they had. So this is a pretty huge confounding factor. But here we adjusted for this factor, and still the differences the difference between the groups stay significant, um, which means overall, baricitinib is prescribed for longer durations than other drugs in our cohort. I think the practical implication is that this drug seems to be well tolerated and effective, and seems at least as good as conventional biologic therapies that we've been using in rheumatology, in rheumatoid arthritis for the last. 20 years. Um, so promising. Uh, I guess we want to see even longer term results, but at least it doesn't look to have a less favorable outcomes than conventional biologics that we use in this, in this indication. The next three presentations focus on patient reported outcomes in patients with RA. Professor Alton looks at patient-reported outcomes in the Finch-3 study. Dr. Kelly Gavigan explores which PROs rheumatology patients find important to track. But first, Professor Vibeka Strand reviews the number needed to treat to achieve minimum clinically significant differences in patient-reported outcomes in patients treated with baricitinib. Hello. I'm Vibika Strand. I'm an adjunct clinical professor in the Division of Immunology and Rheumatology at Stanford. And I also work as a biopharmaceutical consultant. And I'm going to talk about Friday 0048 poster. Number needed to treat to achieve minimally clinically significant differences in patient reported outcomes in patients who are treated with baricitinib. So baricitinib is an oral selective JAK kinase inhibitor, JAK1, JAK2, approved in more than 60 countries for the treatment of moderate to severely active rheumatoid arthritis. And we're looking at two trials, BEAM in methotrexate IR and BEACON in BioDMART IR patients. And the design eligibility criteria and analyses are all at the bottom of the poster. We conducted these analyses to determine the number needed to treat according to the number of patients who reported improvements that met or exceeded MCID, minimum clinically important improvements. In patient-reported outcomes following treatment with baricitinib, and this was at 12 weeks. Essentially, you could see across the different populations in all the patient-reported outcomes that had statistically significantly more patients reporting improvements greater than or equal to MCID. And this includes patient global, pain, HACDI, FACET-F, and SF36 PCS scores. The number needed to treat was less than 10, which is considered clinically meaningful. 
It ranged between 4.3 and 6, with exception of facet in the BEAM trial, and 3.9 to 6.9 with both doses, baricitinib 2 and 4 milligrams, in the BEACON trial. Importantly, we see similar benefits across the SF36 domains. First of all, that there are statistically significant improvements across the majority of domains in both of the trials, six of eight, and then five of eight and four of eight. And we also see that the number needed to treat according to clinically meaningful improvements in SF36 domain scores are very similar to what we saw with the other PROs. So these numbers needed to treat indicate as few as four to six patients need to be treated for there to be clinically meaningful benefits. And these are across the majority of the patient reported outcomes. So these are very positive results and they're very similar to those that have been reported with tofacitinib and upadacin. Thank you. Thursday, 0192 abstract, upadacitinib treatment and the RAPID-3 index among patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So this was a combined analysis of three of the phase three studies with upadacitinib, BEYOND, which was in a bio-DMARD IR population, COMPARE, which was in a methotrexate IR population, and monotherapy, which was also in a methotrexate IR population. Um, select Beyond included 498 patients comparing upadacitinib 15 versus 30 milligrams daily versus placebo. Everyone was on background methotrexate. Disease duration was long, 13.2 years. Compare was in six, 1,629 patients, upadacitinib 15 versus placebo versus adalimumab, all on background methotrexate. Disease duration was 8.2 years. And finally, monotherapy was 648 patients, comparing upadacitinib 15 versus 30 milligrams versus continued methotrexate. And this population had a disease duration of 6.6 .6 years. So what we looked at were the least square mean changes in the RAPID-3 and the percent reporting remission, low disease activity, moderate disease activity, or high disease activity, according to the RAPID-3, as well as looking at the percentage that reported scores that met or exceeded the MCID, minimum clinically important difference change of 3.8. So if we look at the figures in the poster, you can see that it's quite clear that with the upadacitinib doses, either one or both in each of the trials, rapid onset of benefit by the rapid three evident by week two in that the majority of patients in both active treatment groups already reported improvements that exceeded MCID in the RAPID-3. And the figures look very similar across the three populations. Over time, we actually see that at week 12, 
or 14, depending on which was the primary outcome for the three studies, the majority of patients are actually already in remission by RAPID3 or low disease activity. There are still some in, in moderate and high disease activity, but clearly more patients are in low disease activity or even remission at weeks 12 and 14. And then what's also important about the RAPID3 is we talk about whether it has any correlation with our other outcome measures, and the answer is yes. And what we see is very nice correlations, particularly with the SDI, which is most consistent with the RAPID3 since it doesn't include a CRP. So we're seeing that the coefficients of correlation are somewhere with a 0.4 up to even a 0.5 among the active treatment groups, where of course these correlations are much lower in the placebo treatment group. So what we see is that the RAPID3 is a very nice uh, predictor of clinical response by our objective outcomes, DAS28, CDI, and SDI. And it shows us very good correlations between the three patient reported outcomes of global pain and hack across these three populations, three protocols. I'm presenting to you today abstract THU Thursday 0211 radiographic outcomes in patients with rheumatoid arthritis receiving upadacitinib as monotherapy or in combination with methotrexate results at two years from the select compare and select early studies. So <clears throat> this is the two-year data in follow-on to what was defined at week 24 or 26 and then also at one year. And this is the continuing data in all those patients who had x-rays both at baseline and two years. So these were two phase three studies that enrolled patients at high risk for progression. They had baseline erosions, they were ACPA positive or rheumatoid factor positive, and they had elevated HSCRP levels greater than or equal to five. Select early enrolled 945 patients, randomized one to one to one, between upadacitinib 15 milligrams or 30 milligrams or methotrexate monotherapy. This was a methotrexate naive population. Disease duration was 2.7 years. They were rescued at week 26 if they didn't have a CDI less than or equal to 2.8, as well as greater than or equal to 20% improvement in both tender and swollen joint counts. Select Compare enrolled 1,629 patients who were methotrexate IR, randomized two to two to one between upadacitinib 15 milligrams, placebo, or adalimumab, all with background methotrexate and the disease duration was 8.2 years in this population. These patients were offered rescue at weeks 14, 18, or 22 if they didn't have greater than or equal to 20% improvement in both joint counts. And at week 26, if their CDI was not less 
than 2.8. So we have the modified total SHARP scores at weeks 24 or 26 as the primary endpoint, as well as week 48. And then this analysis is for those patients who had MTSS scores at baseline and week 96. And we looked at also the percentage of patients with no radiographic progression defined as less than or equal to zero. All of these data were as observed without imputation. So the first thing we know is that the primary endpoint was met in both protocols at weeks 24 or 26 and 48. Statistically significantly less radiographic progression in the upadacitinib groups versus placebo. And that there was also a significant percentage who had no radiographic progression at six and 12 months. When we now look at two years, Essentially, 83 to 88% of patients had no further x-ray progression, even if they'd had to be rescued, where they were switched between therapies. And then if you look at the percentage with no radiographic progression at two years who remained in their treatment group, it was between 80 and 95%, 80% for methotrexate, 90 and 95% for upadacitinib, at 24 weeks, and also one year was 77 versus 89 versus 93%. Two years, it was almost the same, 76%, 89%, and 91%. So clearly, the radiographic progression had leveled off, particularly between years one and two in those patients who were receiving upadacitinib. And so we understand also that the mean total SHARP scores were very, very similar between one and two years. Similar data is seen also in the select compare population. So at 26 weeks, it was 80% that had no progression in placebo versus 83% without alimumab and 87% with upadacitinib. At one year, this was very close, 79, 77, and 83%. But at two years, it literally had leveled off. It was 77%, 75%, and 82%. So again, the progression levels were almost horizontal between one and two years. And we see very nice data similarly that way statistically significant at six and 12 months, and statistically different uh, between upadacitinib and adalimumab. So what we see in these two populations in a methotrexate naive and a methotrexate IR population is that upadacitinib is quite effective in inhibiting radiographic progression, and that this effect occurs early, evident at six months, and persists over 12 and 24 months. Thank you. Next up is Professor Alton, who is going to look at a patient-reported outcomes from the Finch-3 study. Hello, my name is Riki Alton from Schlossberg Clinic in Berlin, Germany, which is located in the western part of the 
Berlin city. It's also belonging to the University Medicine Berlin. And um, we did a lot of research on Phil Gotinib and uh, from the very beginning, also designing the trial and recruiting the patients and also evaluating the results. And one of the results we got concerning my favorite topic, patient reported outcome, I would like to share with you today. So in this poster, which we presented at EULA this year, we present the rate and the magnitude of change in patient reported outcomes for patients with rheumatoid arthritis who received the YAC specific one inhibitor, filgotinib, in the so-called FINCH-3 trial. FINCH-3 was a global phase three double-blind active control study. Patients with active rheumatoid arthritis and limited or no previous exposure to methotrexate, and this is the specific of this study, were randomized to receive either filgotinib 200 milligrams or 100 milligram once daily together with methotrexate, filgotinib 200 milligram monotherapy or methotrexate monotherapy as a standard therapy for comparison for up to 52 weeks. Comparisons reported here in this poster were not adjusted for multiplicity, except for HACDI for the change from baseline at week 12 for filgotinib plus methotrexate versus methotrexate alone. And as you can see here uh, in table one, Patients in all treatment groups reported high levels of pain, high levels of fatigue, functional disability, and in summary, a poor related quality of life as captured, for instance, by the VAS pain score, by the FATSIT fatigue, by the HACDI, and also by the SF36. In the figure one, and also in three to six, we indicate that patients receiving filgotinib reported a rapid, as we expected from the small molecules, but it has proven here, and also greater improvements within the two to four weeks of treatment with filgotinib relative to patients, and we know all these patients receiving metotrexate. So these very rapid improvements were maintained through with week 52, just one year. As you can see here in figure two, a greater proportion of patients on filgotinib had a minimum clinically important difference in HACDI by week 52. As shown in figure eight, a greater percent of patients receiving filgotinib 200 milligram plus metotrexate achieved an MCID for FF36 PCS in week 12 and 24 compared to metotrexate alone. The improvements in SF36 were prominent, especially in bodily pain, physical functioning, and the role physical domains, as you can see here in the figure seven. So in conclusion, filgotinib has shown that with all the other available YAC inhibitors, uh, which we have now at hand, that filgotinib is a good partner for our treatment with metotrexate. So filgotinib with or without metotrexate led to more rapid and sustained improvements in functional status, in pain, in fatigue and health-related quality of life compared with metotrexate alone for patients 
with moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis who were methotrexate naive. And we hope that in the future, we can bring uh, the small molecules like filgotinib earlier in the treatment line to our patients because if we really can treat the pain of the patients in an earlier course of the disease, then we are not having these pain-prone patients anymore, which are so much suffering um, if they have these pain in the morning, during the day, and the fatigue for a long time period, seeing no improvement. And this for me is the most important fact with the small molecules like filgotinib that you can see a rapid response of the treatment, which changes really the attitude and of course the quality of life of our patients. So I come to an end now, and I would like to thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. And our final presentation is from Dr. Kelly Gavigan, who explores which PROs rheumatology patients find important to track. My name is Kelly Gavigan. I'm a researcher uh, work, that I work with the Global Healthy Living Foundation. Um, I'm a researcher on the Arthritis Power uh, Research Registry, um, which is a registry for patients with rheumatic and musculoskeletal conditions. Um, so the study that um, I'll be talking about today is a study on the um, patient-reported outcomes that rheumatology patients find important to, to track digitally. And um, so we um, conducted this study longitudinally with uh, patients with rheumatic and musculoskeletal conditions from the Arthritis Power Research Registry to better understand what uh, symptoms um, these patients would like to track over time and what symptoms they found important to track. Um, and in terms of tracking, I'm talking about um, symptoms that can be tracked via patient-reported outcomes. Um, so these are measurements um, that patients can uh, fill in um, information about symptoms like pain or fatigue, physical function, um, and it's about a, a seven-day look-back period, and they're filling in this information um, through our Arthritis Power app um, via computer adaptive testing um, measures. So the, uh, the study looked at patients with rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, lupus, osteoporosis, osteoarthritis, and fibromyalgia. And um, the purpose of the study um, in terms of looking at all these conditions was to understand um, if patients, if what patients decided to track uh, differed between these conditions. Um, and we also conducted this study longitudinally to understand if the symptoms that participants decided to track uh, changed over time and changed as they, um, as they took more of these measures. Um, and this study was conducted over a three-month period. Um, so participants were able at baseline to select um, as little as three and as many as 10 measures um, that they'd like to track. And then at months one, two, and three, um, they were able to go in and uh, they were able to change the measures tracked if they wanted to. They could keep it the same. Um, they could increase the, the number of measures tracked or they could decrease the number of measures tracked. 
Um, and uh, so, um, and then at the end of the um, of month three, um, the participants were also asked to rank their top uh, symptom choices, um, uh, the top five symptom choices in, in terms of importance. So um, we had uh, 253 participants start the study at baseline. Um, we had 184 participants complete um, through month three. Um, and as you'll see with the poster, we actually excluded about 43, 44 participants um, from that final analysis um, due to um, various restrictions. And so our total um, number of participants uh, um, uh, analyzed at month three was 140. And um, what we found was that the uh, what participants decided to track um, actually didn't change very much from baseline to month three, um, with the exception of the measurement um, RA flare, um, which was a measurement that only participants with rheumatoid arthritis could take. And that particular measurement actually saw a notable and significant decline in the number of participants who wanted to track it from baseline to month three. But aside from that measurement, um, the the rates at which participants wanted to um, track the various measures remained pretty much the same. Um, and I should say that uh, while we allowed participants to track a minimum of three and a maximum of 10 assessments, um, the average number of assessments uh, was seven, um, and that actually didn't change from baseline through month three. Um, and so, some really interesting results um, in terms of how participants ranked the symptoms at the end of month three um, were that the top, the top symptoms that participants wanted to rank were fatigue being number one, physical function, pain intensity, pain interference, and joint stiffness duration. And I should also say that we did not see differences um, in how these uh, symptoms were ranked between the different conditions. Um, so we consistently saw fatigue, phys physical function, and pain um, in the top five um, across all, all conditions. The most interesting findings um, from this study uh, based on this poster. Um, so I guess to sum it up, we found that um, the top symptoms uh, were fatigue, physical function, pain intensity, pain interference, and joint stiffness duration. And the um, ways that these were ranked um, across conditions didn't change very much. Um, those conditions were still remained in the top five, or those symptoms still remained in the top five based on condition. And we also found that um, what participants decided to track also remained pretty much the same throughout the study across all three months with the exception of the RA flare measure. Um, and that participants chose to, to select uh, seven symptoms to track um, from baseline to month three, and that also did not see a change. Thank you for listening to this edition of Insights at ULAR 2020. Make sure to subscribe to the CSF podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss out on our other ULAR 2020 content. Subscribe now to listen to condensed daily highlights of the ULAR Congress in addition 
to a complete Congress review presented by Professor Rike Alton and Professor Thomas Dorner. If you found this informative, why not listen to our regular podcasts, which include author interviews and monthly reviews of the latest cytokine signaling papers hosted by the CSF chairman, Professor Ian McInnes. You can also visit cytokinesignaling.com for access to a wide range of free educational resources, including monthly slide summaries of the latest papers and accredited CME courses. Thank <laughs> you.